So uh, this is kind of fun, huh? <laughs> Somehow we managed to hire James Taylor as a worship pastor too, which is kind of fun. Um, and uh, we're pretty excited to get Trish and his girls up here sometime soon. That'll be uh, when it'll really get good. Ah. Uh, Last week, I, uh, I intended to do something and I forgot, so I'm going to do it this week. But the theater where we kind of went to has a kind of a backstory, which is fun. So since this is the story time, thanks to Guy. Um, Ken and Laura Wong came up to Bend and knew only one other couple, and they um, came up here to be, uh, Ken is a, man, was a, is a manager at the Regal Theater. And so when he came up here, they didn't know why they were here, and they were kind of a little bit lost as they tell the story. Um, and they came to a church where I was presenting the vision for Antioch and how we were going to be meeting in the Regal Cinemas. Um, and it was kind of the first Sunday they'd gone to a church in Bend, and uh, they kind of shed a tear too. And it was one of those um, divine God moments when you see his fingerprints on stuff. And so Ken and Laura came up afterwards, and they said, uh, we're here because of you, or because of the church, actually. Um, we're at the theater. And so... It was an amazing thing watching that happen, and what eventually uh, took place was from the time we started, Ken Wong would work till about 2.30 in the morning, get home about 2.30 in the morning, go to bed, and then about, or wouldn't go to bed, I think they'd play video games actually, uh, and then about four hours later, he would get to the theater uh, to open up for us, and then he and Laura would stay and be a part of the setup crew, and Ken would have to rearrange all the movie times to kind of give us that little wing or... or or hallway that we had. And they did that for uh, over a year while we were at the Regal, and they were never late one single Sunday, never missed one single Sunday, uh, even though they didn't sleep any one of those. That's like a record, right? We should check Guinness, like a year without sleeping on Saturday nights. Um, and so anyways, the, I really have this belief that not enough things in life are shared, that there's so many words of affirmation or, or Words of recognition are neat things that we see and we think them and they, they're in our head but they never come out of our mouth and we deprive people of that. And I think in scripture it talks about honoring those who work hard among you. And I, I really just wanted last week and we're going to do it this morning um, for you guys to look at Ken and Laura. They're standing back there because I made them. Um, but just give them a hand. And Ken has got a, uh, a newfound smile on his face and just an easiness about him because he's no longer caught in the middle between the church and the regal. Um, but definitely just express thanks to them uh, if you get the chance. Uh, thanks, Ken and Laura. And uh, they're not the only ones. We've got a whole lot of people that are amazing. Um, and last night, there was a group of people here till uh, well after midnight working on setup. Um, you know, it was so late, my wife barely had time to dress me this morning. Um, and uh, and so the kids' ministry thing, all that looks amazing. So just make sure you, you encourage the people that are working hard because they're doing an amazing job. So uh, I just wanted to kind of start it there. One other thing is last Sunday I kind of mentioned something that's paradoxical to me as I've, always, as I've read the New Testament, and it's just that... If we were to write it, if an American was to write the New Testament, you'd see all these one-on-one experiences with Jesus and one other person. And so I kind of mentioned last week how it's funny when you read the New Testament, you don't see many 
Jesus with just one other person kind of moments. And somebody came up and asked me, well, is there any of those moments? So I didn't go back and relook, but the ones that I've always kind of thought of are these. And so I'll just share those with you in case you're wondering. Um, I see moments where Jesus is alone with God. I uh, I see a time when Jesus was, uh, was alone with the devil when he was being tempted out in the desert. And then I saw, I've seen a, a place in John chapter 3 where he's alone with a woman at a well. Those are the three that I've kind of always had in my mind is the only places I can see where Jesus is alone with somebody. And I think it's telling because um, God is the source of strength. And Satan and temptation is the source of weakness. And we never really look at that. We kind of try to run from it. And I think maybe there's something there that we need to just stare it in the face and try to overcome or conquer instead of always letting it run us. And then Jesus was alone with the woman at the well. And what that really teaches us is that we have to initiate towards the people that are in the the margins of society. What I mean by the margins of society is, uh, you know, in a book... All the text is in the middle, and in the margins, it's open or it's blank, and you don't go there. It's, it's, it's in the margins. And there's people out there, and they can't find you. They're kind of in the pit, and they need a hand to lift them out. And God wants us to initiate to those people who can't help, who can't help themselves. And really, that's the story of the gospel, because God initiated to us through Jesus Christ to help us when we couldn't help ourselves. And so uh, anyways, just those are the ones I've found. You might go back and find like 30 and then I'll have to come next week and print uh, like retraction. Uh, Like evidently there's 33 places. But uh, if you've got other places where Jesus is alone with somebody, you can come let me know what you found. But those are the three that I've found. And hopefully maybe that's just a lesson for us to get alone with God, the source of our strength, to face our temptations head on uh, and then to initiate to people on the margins. And let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into this morning's message. Father, it's, uh, it's funny to think of life as a story. And this morning, it's kind of one of those points where we're, we're in the story. And I just pray that we wouldn't see our hand as being on the pen or the, the keyboard or, or that we're in any way writing the story. I just, I just pray that we'd be humble enough that we would look to you and and want you to be the author of this story as a church, uh, the story of our lives, that we would truly be able to say, like Jesus said someday, that the only things that we seek to do are the things that we see and hear from our Father. Father, let us be God-saturated, and let it be so extensive that when people see us, whatever busyness is in their lives, they kind of lose it because they want to follow us or observe us. Give us the kind of lives that are worth modeling. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so we're in a uh, series on Francis Schaeffer. Last week was the first week. This is the second week and last week. And we're going to normally have a huge screen there. We just uh, have to mount some kind of a projector for the school and, and some stuff like that. So typically we're going to have this huge screen. So those little fill-in-the-blanks in your notes pages, I'll try and hit those for you verbally so that you can get them. Uh, but they're not going to show up on the screen. But I know um, some of you out there have that, that, that personality type where if you miss one, you'll lose like a week's worth of sleep uh, for no reason. Even if you don't like the sermon, there's still a missing spot. So I'll try and let you know those. Um, 
There's a uh, timeline on the left side of that uh, insert in the notes page, and it's a biography of Schaefer. And we set the context kind of of the life, the, the times, the cultural times, the, the historical context. And now we just want to jump into Schaefer's life. And so if you just kind of read through that with me. Schaefer was born in Germantown, uh, Germantown section of Philadelphia back in 1912. His father was a tradesman, and his plan for Francis Schaefer was always that Francis Schaefer would be a tradesman too, and he went to tech school uh, right after high school, but obviously he became um, not a tradesman, but more of a philosopher and a theologian. It was when he was 18, uh, 1930, that, that he became a Christian. He went on and graduated magna cum laude from Hamden Sydney College in Virginia. And that same year, on July 26th, he married Edith Seville, and he and Edith Seville met at a youth group in Philadelphia. They'd met each other years before, but kind of um, connected again uh, at this point in time in his college life. And, and Edith Schaefer uh, was the daughter of missionary parents. And they ended up having three daughters and a son. And then Schaefer went on to Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia in that fall. And he studied under Cornelius Van Til and J. Gresham Macon. And that's kind of a huge thing. Um, because the history of the Christian churches in America at this point in the late 20s and, and early 30s, monumental things are going on. And Princeton had always kind of been the, the theological seminary that was the bastion of, of reformed teaching, of conservative scholarship, of Calvinism, of kind of deep orthodox thinking with such greats as, uh, as Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield. And so there's this long history of, of Princeton Seminary. And there's this guy there that was uh, the New Testament prof, and his name was um, J. Gresham Machen. And the school began to veer towards a liberal, modernist approach to things. And Machen kind of stood up against that and, and said, this is, uh, this is not historical Christianity. This isn't even what the churches believe that, that we're supposed to be the seminary for. And, and what it is is it's this kind of political move. And you get people in the higher echelons of a school and they start hiring different people. And, and Machen kind of stood up against that and said, we're leaving the historical Christian faith by going down this modernist and kind of liberal bent where we no longer hold to the tenets of the authority of Scripture, etc. And so Machen kind of stood up against it and, and got nowhere and eventually left and he started Westminster Theological Seminary in uh, 1929. And it's still there and it's still one of the kind of premier seminaries um, within the Orthodox kind of conservative faith. Machen and several others were expelled from the Presbyterian Church in 1935 and 1936 just for their opposition to what was going on in foreign missions and other things. And they were kind of defrocked, I think is the terminology um, basically, but were removed from that denomination as it went kind of in a different direction. And then he started what is called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and it's still around today, that um, kind of branch of the Presbyterian Church. But Schaefer came in right at this point in history. And so, as we see his later life, Schaefer kind of is steeped in this, this strong Orthodox um, kind of Christianity, historical Christianity that resists kind of a modernist bent or direction. And he's kind of raised up in this and spends his time resisting kind of this modernist trend and preaching scripture and teaching scripture. And I think as we see later on, he then adds to that as he's over in Switzerland, 
I think, a real shepherd's heart to his deep understanding of Scripture and his knowledge and, and that kind of a background. So as we move along, he graduates and he becomes ordained, 1938, and pastors the Bible Presbyterian Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. He goes to a couple other churches, and then in 1948, he moves to Switzerland as a missionary. Right after the war, Switzerland's kind of a safe place because it was neutral during the war. And Schaefer uses that as a kind of a home base to, to go reach out to different countries and set up children's uh, programs and, and children's ministries. I mentioned last week a period of doubt in his life where he took it all the way back to, to kind of brass tacks and questioned Scripture and rigorously uh, and skeptically analyzed the faith to find out, is this really true? Am I just doing this because it works for me? Or is this actually something I believe to be true? Not true for a group of people, but true as in um, universally true. And he came out of that season with that phrase, true truth, that Christianity to him it was a true truth. And that period of doubt was 1950 to 51. That period of doubt led him to eventually, when he was getting kicked out of the city where they lived in Switzerland, to move across the valley and open up a, uh, a place called Labrie, 1955, I'm sorry. And Labrie is French for just shelter. And I think we've got a picture of it. Um, and this is the chalet that they kind of took over. And they set it up, they quit the missions board, and they basically prayed to God, God bring the workers, God bring the money, and God bring the people for us to impact this generation in Europe um, who is lost, who is looking for answers, who are asking the deep philosophical questions and finding every answer that they're kind of running across as being empty or hollow or not sufficient. Bring those people to us. In 1958, he established Labrie in England. And then he goes on to publish his first book entitled The God Who Is There at age 56. Between 50, 56 and the, the year he dies, for the next 16 years, he authors 22 books, um, which is pretty wild uh, if you think about it because a lot of them are scholarly books. And so in a 16-year period, authors 22 books. The first one he writes, The God Who Is There, I think is, is huge because it's symbolic. He's been spending all these years in Labrie, and we're going to talk about it in a moment. And people are coming, European people are coming who are reading Nietzsche. who are reading the philosophers of the day, and, and they're showing up and... And it's kind of a messy deal, and a lot of them are on LSD, a lot of them are on different drugs. There's people getting sick in kind of the living room area. And all these people, just a rough crowd with, with different, different questions and ideas, are coming to them, and they're all asking the same root fundamental question. Is, is there a God? Is God out there? And they're looking for God. And so Schaefer's first book is The God Who Is There. Yes, there is a God. And he is there. And so it's kind of a telling thing, the first book that he writes. In 1971, he's awarded his second honorary doctorate. And then in 1978, he's diagnosed with cancer, and he'd lived with cancer for six years. And he kind of took it on as a challenge from God, as an opportunity to be a light or to witness to other people on how he dealt with suffering. He, he answered so many philosophical questions for so long. Um, the problem of evil was, was a huge thing. The problem of pain, how do we deal with that? I've got a talk on Wednesday um, at this thing called the Apologetics Guild that a bunch of us do in Bend on that, that question. The problem of pain, the problem of evil, how do we 
pursue God when there's all these nagging, huge doubts in our mind as a result of pain and what seems like gratuitous suffering. And so when he got cancer, he kind of saw it as an opportunity for him not to just talk about the problem of evil, but to let his life kind of be a testimony in the midst of that. And so it was, there's a whole kind of story of his life where you could write a book on just how he dealt with cancer. 1979, he began Labrie in America. And now there's a, a Labrie in Massachusetts and also in Minnesota. And a, a Francis Schaeffer Study Center at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. If you go there, there's kind of like a uh, Francis Schaeffer Study Center house that you can stay at. And it's kind of a cool little deal. 1981, he published a Christian Manifesto which became a bestseller, and it's kind of a, a huge um, link into Schaefer that a lot of people use. 1982, the complete works of Francis Schaefer are published. And then in 1984, Francis Auguste Schaefer dies in Rochester, Minnesota, where he's still buried. So um, what can we learn? What can we learn from Francis Schaefer? That's the question I kept asking myself, and I finally kind of settled on something that I've always seen and believed to be true of the way God works through people. And I think that when we frame that, it's easier for us to learn from Schaefer. And it's this kind of belief that I have. And, and, and it's that there's one thing for every person that God works through. That he uses one person to do one major thing in their life. And that's pretty much it. And then we die. And... uh so the Christian life has a lot in common with Billy Crystal and City Slickers. Um, if you remember when he delivers the calf and Jack Palance is there and, and he says there's one thing and he spends the whole movie trying to figure out what the one thing was. Then he finds Francis Schaefer and he gets it. Um, the, uh, but it's one thing. And so I guess where I kind of get that from is this. You look at the great lives in scripture and Moses's job was to bring the people out of Israel and into the desert, so to speak. And God uses Joshua to bring them out of the desert and into the land. He uses David to unify the kingdom, but he uses Solomon to build the temple. Um, he uses John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. He uses Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb, the atonement for our sins. He uses Peter to go to the Jews and then he uses Paul to go to the Greeks and it seems like all throughout Scripture, you can kind of reduce it down and say, this person's life, their, their mission, what God had for them was this thing. And it's made up of millions of little things, but it's this one big thing. And I think Francis Schaeffer's one thing came during that season at Labrie. Now, the place, so if you're following along, the place in my mind that we want to focus in on is Labrie. Now, they didn't keep any records. They didn't keep any numbers. So it's a fascinating thing because you have no idea who, how many people went through that place. They never advertised. They never did any kind of a thing. They just let people who were searching, who had questions, come and find them. And it spread word of mouth throughout Europe. Do you know how crazy that sounds to me? I mean, it's hard to spread word of mouth about like a church throughout a town the size of Bend. How are you going to get word of mouth about this little chalet in Switzerland to spread word of mouth all throughout Europe? And it's crazy what God did. And I've got just a small clip I want to show you um, that kind of gives you a little bit of the feel or the flair of what was going on at Labrie. And I was still on a quest just to find out if there was a God or not. You know, does he like black folk? Uh, is he really there? Does he exist? 
the emotions and the thoughts that, that I was having you know, as I went off to Libri. It was really quite a mixture. There was bitterness uh, about having been born black in America. And to hear folk calling your, your father boy and the way you were treated, you know, just as a person, it was just, it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible to see that. And surely there was somebody who could do something about it or would do something about it. We were walking up the mountain somewhere. And coming from Oklahoma, I'd never seen mountains anyway, but we were up there in the Alps and walking in the mountains. And uh, he answered all my questions there. He said, look, I think you should stay a while. And um, just relax. Keep asking your questions. And when we finished, he said, I'm going to carry on up the mountain because this is my day off. And uh, I'll see you when we get back. Irrespective of everything he just said and all the things, all the questions he just answered for me, this man had just given me his time. This is his day off. And he'd invited me on the walk with him. And when I think of Mrs. Schaefer, I think mother. I think um, somebody who cares, somebody who loves me. That was She was part of uh, my life in a very special way. Um, I mean, she reached out to me. It was as if I were her own. So uh, the place is Labrie. The thing was that Schaefer made it okay to have a goatee and be a theologian. <laughs> um, Labrie, Le, uh, they mentioned Edith Schaefer there at the end, and there's some fascinating stories about Edith Schaefer. And they talk about how she did all the cooking for all of this. And uh, one of the people that was there talked about how she was watching Edith Schaefer cook with a young gal. And there's basically... Two things when you went to Labrie, you either came as a guest and you could stay for up to a week on their dime and just sit around and talk and answer, uh, ask questions and dialogue, things like that, almost as if it was a hostel. Or you could come as a student and you could stay uh, a lot longer, but you'd have to study half the day and you would have to work and contribute to that kind of a commune. So you either came as a guest for a short period, or you decided to stay longer, and then you were put in that student category, and you worked. And so Edith Schaefer's working with one of these students, and the girl messed up the cake, and uh, this other observer was saying, I expected Edith Schaefer to be frustrated because they'd spent hours on this thing, and they have to prepare all this food for people. And Edith Schaefer turns around, and she says, oh, that's no problem. It just won't be the cake that we envisioned. It'll be a different cake. It'll be a different cake made out of the same ingredients. And she said to this gal that had messed it up, she said, you know, that's a lot like God does with your life. You know, it doesn't always turn out the way you envision it, but he takes the same ingredients and he makes something out of it, you know, and, and she just kind of goes on. And, and to me, that is, that's the essence of discipleship. If you go back to Deuteronomy 6 and, and kind of the commands to parents and to the older who are going to teach the younger is that from the, the time the sun comes up to the time it goes down, that you take people and you teach them and you show them how God has everything to do with the little things in life. And one of the things that's so, one of the reasons I think it's so hard for us to be Christians is we think God has something to do with church or God has something to do with the Bible, but God doesn't have anything to do with messed up cakes or he doesn't have anything to do with messed up lives. And when we begin to understand that and teach people that and model that, 
it makes it so much easier for people to run after God because he's the God that meets them where they're at. He's the God who's there. So Edith Schaefer, um, amazing story, but going back to what he said about Francis Schaefer. Here's a skeptic asking questions, and Francis Schaefer ends the conversation with, you should stay a while, you should ask your questions, and by the way, i got to go finish my walk now. I don't know if you've been in the Christian church long or if you've just known Christians but you're not a Christian or whatnot. That's not your typical thing. I mean, the typical end to a conversation is, now do you see why you were wrong? (laughs) And are you ready to get down on your knees and worship me for being right? And then in that conversation, we might let you meet God too. Um, But it's this real heavy, forceful kind of a thing. And it's amazing what Francis Schaeffer did. And that really is the one thing. So here's the one thing. It's wisdom. And Lady Wisdom, I think, takes on a lot of different words. I think it takes on virtue. I think, I think it takes on the word maturity. Or we could even use the word balance. Now, we don't worship people, but we can learn from them and follow them. Okay? And when I say Schaeffer was mature and wise and godly that way and balanced it's not so that we can worship him but i think he shows us something that we're all supposed to to shoot for paul says follow me as i follow christ we can use people as an example and the book book of ecclesiastes says this in chapter 7 verse 18 and it's in your little notes so make sure you hit the the blank spot it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. It's kind of an interesting thing. In in philosophy, uh, it's known as Aristotle's golden mean. There's a lot of philosophers that had the idea of the mean, but Aristotle's golden mean basically was this. Virtue is the mean between the extremes. And what what he wanted to say, what... um, Aristotle wanted to say about ethics was on one side you had a deficiency and on the other side you had an excess. And so here's some of uh, the ways that Aristotle put it in his, his ethical writings. And he basically said, you've got the defect of cowardice and you've got the excess of rashness. And in the middle you have courage. It's the balance. It's the mean between the extremes. You have stinginess on one side, extravagance on another. And in the middle you have liberality. You have sloth on one side, you have greed on the other, and in the middle you have ambition. You have secrecy on one side, you have locacity on the other, and in the middle you have honesty, moroseness, buffoonery, good humor, quarrelsomeness, flattery, friendship, self-indulgence, insensibility, in the middle, temperance. And so he basically said the virtues end up as kind of the mean between the extremes. And I think that that's just a spiritual law that God kind of built into us, that when we fear him and we look at him, we're able to live in the tension and not pendulum swing from one side to the other. And I think Schaefer modeled this with his life to a deep level. Here's some of the things I see in Francis Schaefer. He says this, kind of aimed at the head, Christianity provides a unified answer for the whole of life. But then he'd also say this, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. I love this quote. Doctrinal rightness and rightness of ecclesiastical position are important, 
but only as a starting point to go on into a living relationship. They're not as, they're not as ends in themselves. He goes on and, and gives these two paradoxical statements. Christianity is the greatest intellectual system the mind of man has ever touched. Seems like it's crazy extreme on one side, doesn't it? And he comes back with this and he says, each generation of the church in each setting has the responsibility of communicating the gospel in understandable terms, considering the language and thought forms of that setting. He's not just coming over on the intellectual side and saying it's, it's truth and it's this and blah. He's trying to figure out how to contextualize it and reason and explain. This is something that we must always be careful of. Listen to this one carefully because it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's maybe the 11th grade reading level version. So I think everyone passes. So here we go. Uh, this is something we must be always be careful of. Words have two meanings, the definition and the connotation. The connotation goes on no matter what you do with the definition. Modern man destroys the definition of religious words, but nevertheless likes to cash in on their connotation and motivational force. So he's at Labrie and all these people are coming and they're talking about morality and they're talking about ethics and they're talking about their life and they're talking about beauty. A lot of them are artists. And, and Schaefer would sit back and say, how do you get beauty without God? The idea of ethics and morality and, and aesthetics are built on a foundation of a created, orderly, rational world with intentionality and purpose. And just like Nietzsche said, he was the first to say God is dead. And he, he was talking to the other philosophers of his day saying, you guys have killed God, but you go on acting like he's still alive with the rest of your philosophical systems. And Schaefer's kind of saying the same thing, but in reverse from a Christian perspective and saying, you can't keep the connotation if you've changed the definition. I think I just threw that one in there because I like it. Anyways, Schaefer also says this. Christianity believes that God has created an external world that is really there. And because he is a reasonable God, one can expect to be able to find the order of the universe by reason. So Schaefer was really big on reason. Reason's always put on the one side of the spectrum, right? And Schaefer writes a book called Escape from Reason. And he takes the history of ideas and a lot of philosophers and takes them to task as kind of deteriorating the, the history of reason or kind of the ideal of the rationality of man and how that's kind of gone away. And he writes this thing called Escape from Reason. And then he comes back and he writes this, Art in the Bible. I mean, it's just, it's, it's interesting. He's on both sides of the spectrum. He's not falling off and becoming an extremist about rationality. He's over here valuing the arts. And listen to what he says. Christianity is not just dogmatically true or doctrinally true. Rather, it is true to what is there. True in the whole area of the whole man and all of life. And if Christianity is really true, then it involves the whole man, including his intellect and his creativeness. And so Schaefer always kind of ends up on one side and you think he's a rationalist. And then all of a sudden he's over here and you're like, he's a romantic and he values the arts and all these other things in culture. And it's interesting to me that he really navigated between those extremes and was able to balance that tension. 
It's interesting in, in his uh, book, A Christian Manifesto, and he gave it as a lecture. I've got it on DVD. And he, makes, he takes great pains in the book and in the lecture to say, I'm against humanism. And then he, he, he continued on to say, but I'm not against um, the humanities. And it doesn't mean that I'm against humanitarianism. There's a distinction between those. I'm against humanism as a worldview, as a philosophical system. But these other things, the humanities, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And obviously humanitarianism, there's good in that. And so Schaefer is careful to make his distinctions and to live in the balance and in that tension. Now here's the thing. Um, Christianity in America today has a bad habit of defining ourselves by what we're against. We have a bad habit of defining ourselves by what we're against. There's a book that just came out recently that was a book written by Christians off of a study funded by Christians of what 20-somethings in America think about Christianity. Okay? The whole, this, this isn't non-Christians analyzing. This is Christians doing an extensive, exhaustive survey to find out what people in their 20s think about Christianity. Here's the list. When they hear Christian, 20-somethings, 91% think anti-homosexual. 87% judgmental. 85% hypocritical. The very next ones go in order. Old-fashioned, too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, boring, not accepting of other faiths, and confusing. Not a single positive word or idea, paradigm, that 20-somethings in America have towards Christianity. Isn't that amazing? We're known for what we're against. Part of that is the legacy of Schaefer. It's not his fault. It's like, you know, here you've got Christ and you've got Christians giving him a bad name. You had Schaefer and a bunch of people read a Christian manifesto and started the Christian right and did a lot of things without love and kind of brought a lot of these ideas on. And so I think some of the people that follow Schaefer give Schaefer a bad name, and it's not fair. Um, so I hope nobody ever follows me because I do a good enough job of messing um, up my own image. I don't need any help. Um, but here's the thing. Um, we define ourselves by what we're against. We do, don't we? And it's a slippery slope when you start trying to say, I'm against this and I'm against that and I'm against this and I'm against that. Pretty soon that's just what's going in your mind and, and you slide. It's like when you, you know, running down a roof when the hammer drops and then you can't stop and you just go right off the edge. Does that make sense? And so we've become, to this generation of Americans, everything negative. I uh, had a college group before this church got started, and there was a, a gal in the college group that came to me. She said, Ken, you know, I have a friend, a Christian friend that goes to a big church in town here in Bend, and, and he said, I need to stay away from you because you have a, a degree in philosophy. And I kind of chuckled, and I said, you know, well, the, the next time you see him, ask him this question and say, you know, if you're walking to your car and you slip on ice and you get to your car and there's ice on the handle, you get inside the car and there's ice on the window, do you drive slower? Because if he says yes, then, then that's deductive reasoning, it's logic, and that's, that's pretty much what philosophy does. It's logic and deductive reasoning and just studying those things. Okay, so, so philosophy in and of itself isn't a bad thing. And I told her, I said, don't blame this guy because you know what? He, um, he's just repeating what he's been taught. That's the sad part, right? 
this young guy was just taking what he'd heard. And what he'd heard was this. Some older person in the church, mentor or whatever, said that philosophy is bad because Paul in the New Testament says, be careful or beware of hollow and deceptive philosophy. But when we, when we don't think, we just make those kinds of judgments and we become negative without realizing that Paul said, um, beware not of philosophy, but of hollow and deceptive philosophies, bad worldviews, just like Schaefer attacked bad worldviews. You see, um, it says the love of money is a bad thing in the New Testament. It doesn't say money is evil. See, things that aren't alive are just things, okay? You and me, people that are alive, we're the bad things. We're evil. And we take stuff and we twist it around, and that's where the bad comes in. But philosophy in and of itself, money in and of itself, these are just things, and they're inert, and we twist them. And so it's not money, it's the love of money. It's not philosophy, it's hollow and deceptive philosophy that's bad. And so we've got to learn as Christians to start making some distinctions and not just being against everything. We need to do like Francis Schaeffer and be comfortable with someone asking us questions and saying, you know, this is going to be an ongoing conversation maybe for months. Come live at my house. You know, puke on my couch. (laughs) Um, We'll talk. And we've got to be comfortable with that and allowing it to, to, to happen and and not be defined by our negativity. And I really honestly believe that Schaefer had a maturity to hold these things in tension, to be rational yet also appreciate the more romantic and emotional sides of our being, to believe strongly in the truth of what he believed, yet not to cram it down people's throats. The woman caught in adultery, it's an amazing story. She's brought out and she's supposed to be stoned. And... uh if this was a lecture on, um, and maybe we'll get there someday, if this was a lecture on why we need to realize that women get treated bad, I mean, the question is, how come the woman's there and the guy's not, you know? And I think we've got we to ask some of those questions too. Um, but the point of this part is simply, um, Jesus looks at these guys that are so focused on condemning this woman, and he says this, who of you is without sin? If you are then you can go ahead. You've got a framework with which to judge this woman. So go ahead. And they all realize that that no one is without sin, and so they kind of dissipate. And Jesus says this, and it's amazing. He says, does anyone condemn you? And they're all gone. She's kind of like, no. And he goes, well, then neither do I. I forgive you. I let it go. I'm not going to hold it against you. He doesn't condemn. He forgives See, we think that if we don't condemn, the opposite of condemning is, is forgetting or ignoring or acting like nothing bad really happened. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus just goes to the opposite side of condemn and says, I don't hold it against you. I forgive you. I've got grace. Go and sin no more kind of a thing. And he's saying, we've got to love. We don't condone. We don't ignore. We don't forget. We forgive. We forgive. And so when we show up to people that are lost, we shouldn't look at them and grab them by the ears and get in their face and yell loud enough to where spit's coming out. You're lost. What is wrong with you? You're stupid too, you know. And it's not the way God dealt with us. 
And that's not the way we're supposed to deal with other people. We're supposed to treat them like the little old lady that needs to cross the street. And we go over and go, oh, let me help you. Let me help you across. And, and she can be beating you with an umbrella and pummeling you. That's okay. You tried. But in your heart, you're, you're a good little boy scout. And we need good little boy scouts, not bad Christians. Okay? And, and that's kind of where Jesus teaches us. And I think Schaefer shows us that. And it's huge. My wife brought into our marriage a saying that she learned from a uh, pastor of hers. And the saying was this, if all were known, all would be forgiven. If all were known, all would be forgiven. You know the things that really bug you about other people? There's reasons they do that. You know, a messed up childhood or whatever. Um, there's reasons why you do the messed up things that you do too. And if somebody really walked a mile in your shoes, um, they wouldn't forget what you did. They wouldn't excuse what you did. They wouldn't ignore what you did, but they could forgive what you did. It's not as heinous as they thought. Oh, I get it. I understand. God knows everything. And he's prepared to forgive everything. If all were known, all would be forgiven. And the next time you really struggle with somebody, just go, you know what? Um, my daddy's daddy probably wasn't too great either. Or my mama's mama probably was hard on her. And they did the best they could with what they were given. You know, but we've got to learn to have a little more grace. And, and that's a prerequisite to being able to have this maturity and this wisdom and this balance that Schaefer had. And so I see again in Schaefer just a wonderful heart of avoiding the extremes of acting like there is no sin and just going around and being against everything and defined by what we're against. That's kind of the turn or burn evangelism, right? Um, people are weak and they're needy and they're lost. And we need to start getting excited about loving on people. And I think that's where the joy is going to come from. That Maybe it'll give us a different image than what this is. Um, I drew it last week, but... I really think that the church needs to strike a balance between the head over here in truth and the heart over here in love and the world in which we, we live in and finding the way to be in it but not of it. And that somehow church, if we can hit this target here, the sweet spot, that's a home run. Um, I feel like Schaefer at Labrie hit this. And it's attractive. You know, when you see good, good is this wonderful quality of always being attractive. So I think the place for Schaefer was Labrie. I think the thing that he did was strike that balance. And when I was in a seminary before I met Tamara, there was a season where I used to speed read, which is really funny because it takes me like an hour to get through like a Dr. Seuss book now, or I won't even finish it. And I'll be like, hey, kids, you want a snack? You know, um, but the, the crazy thing about speed reading is, is as you're flying down pages, what you learn is there's like only a couple of words per page that really carry the rock bottom meaning. Your eye will just catch a few words, but that carries all of the meaning for you to keep going and get the whole context of what's going on. And uh, it's funny because... For the last year, I've thought, I've always wanted to have like a mantra for Antioch. 
Because it's like every other cool church has a cool little mantra, cool little slogan, cool little like saying, you know. And I want to be cool. <laughs> um, so I, I kept trying to come up with a cool little mantra, you know, a cool little saying, cool little slogan. And, and every time I like come up with something in my mind, I'm like, no, it's just too cheesy. You know, it's too much. And I think it's because slogans or mantras say too much. And so we've always had four words, and it's kind of from that whole speed reading thing. There's just words, and they carry meaning. And so our words at Antioch are, are simply this. Truth, beauty, meaning, and adventure. And uh, I've kind of, I guess where I'm at with it is I don't want to define that in too much. It needs to just sit there as words and, and let your mind just grab the symbols and then put the flesh to it and, and wrap it up and package it. But it's, it's to me the words that communicate that balance, hitting it in the middle. When I think of Schaefer, like that's where it drives me. And so we're mantraless, you know, um, Great, I feel like we're naked, um, but we've got words. And so I'll let your minds kind of wrap around that and try and say, you know what, God wants us to go to the middle, and we don't want to swing from extreme to extreme. And I'll kind of close with this. Um, a year ago, we were reading some Schaefer, my wife and I, and on my blog I wrote, I wrote this. This is April 20th, 2007. And I say this, I was reading about Francis and Edith Schaefer the other night, and something really jumped out at me. Edith Schaefer, writing years after the event, said that at the defining moment of their lives when they started Labri, they decided to ask God that our work and our lives be a demonstration that he does exist. Tamara and I talked about this at length. We, too, want our lives to be a demonstration that God really does exist, not just in our actions, but somehow through the movement of God in our lives as we try to live by faith. Anyway, we decided to make the Schaefer's prayer our prayer, hoping that somehow our lives might make it easier for others to know the God who is there. Edith Schaefer takes that prayer at the beginning of her book on Labrie, which if you want, I'd be more than happy to loan to you. But they took that defining moment in that prayer they prayed, and she ended up making it the mission statement of Labrie, even though they didn't have mission statements. She said, we have, in other words, decided to live on the basis of prayer so that we might demonstrate to any who care to look the existence of God. And to me, the greatest thing about Schaefer is they lived like that. They modeled that. They're an example for that. And their lives point other people to the excitement and the joy of a God that really does exist, that really is there, that really does care. And if there's any one thing maybe we walk away from this morning is if we really do grasp that we live in a what C.S. Lewis called a God-haunted universe. It's not just Sunday morning. It's not just when you read. It's everywhere. And God speaks into every little thing like the cakes. But if we really grasp that and begin to tailor our lives towards that and, and we live that out, there's going to be something.